My name is Carlos Huatemo Totolero. I'm a music programmer for the Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events for the City of Chicago. And you are listening to Talking Blues. I know music and dance are a big part of your life. Tell me how that happened. Uh, not by choice initially. Um, I sort of stumbled into the dance part, um, but I've always been passionate about music, um, just as a fan, a listener. When I say stumbled into dance, um, I got into festival production through a program called the Chicago Summer Dance Series. It's mostly a live music and dance series that runs for pretty much the entire summer. It's about eight weeks, four nights, four to five nights a week. And it features a wide array of social dance. And the whole point is to learn a dance step that you can practice to live music. Sometimes we have DJs, but it's usually bands. And this was sort of like my first foray into festival production and being behind the scenes. And um, through this program, I became immersed into dance culture. (laughs) Again, mostly social dance, but the whole gamut. And, um, you know, obviously the music was complimentary and I was able to program a lot of different things, but it was always through the lens of a dancer. So, that's what I mean by by chance. I happen to stumble into this culture. Do you dance at all? You know, I do a lot of the uh, Latin dances, mostly right. cumbia, some salsa. But by no means am I an expert. Um, but I do enjoy Latin dancing. Um, but again, the type of programming that we offer isn't specific to one culture or region. It's everything under the sun. Um, if it has a following, if it's popular, we try to program it. How did music come into your life? Music. I think initially through my grandfather, if you want to go into my childhood. Right. We won't spend too much time there. Um, my grandfather was a huge music lover, and he had an amazing record collection. And I would just sift through it. What kind of stuff was he listening to? Oh, God. A lot of classical music. Um, he loves Santana, as all Mexicans do. Uh, <laughs> and non-Mexicans. <laughs> and non-Mexicans, but Santana was huge in my house. Believe it or not, that's what he would put me to sleep to. <laughs> so if you're going to sleep to soul sacrifice, um, you know, you're in, you're in the company of one, I think. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he was very into Santana. He was really into a lot of classic rock listen to Jeff Beck. Um, can, can I ask, might be a silly question, but as a, as a Mexican person or heritage, what does Santana mean to you? Other than just the obvious that that's where he came from, but like, is there a connection other than that? I mean, if you remember the configuration of the band um, from the congueros and the percussive elements were <laughs> definitely something Latinos could easily relate to. I think for Mexicans here in the United States, seeing someone like Carlos Santana achieve the success and notoriety that he has, um, you know, is a sense of validation for the community Mm -hmm. that, you know, somebody could reach the upper echelons of music, popular music at that time. but my grandfather loved to dance. He loved the rap pack. He loved big band jazz. He loved all that. And so I was exposed to a wide array of music. Um, you know, growing up, my mom's wasn't very strong in her command of the English language. So, you know, to this day, she still leans more towards Spanish-speaking culture. And, you know, obviously the music comes with that. So ranchero music, corridos, you know, that style, norteño music, all very popular in my house. Mana, 
you know, a lot of the big commercial successes. So I think primarily through them and then also my sister Linda, those were my major music influences. My sister Linda was part of this Save MTV culture. She's a couple years older than me, so, you know, I was exposed to everything in the 80s from, you know, The Cure to later to Depeche Mode in the early 90s. But yeah, I would say those were th- my three primary influences in music, and that's sort of where I started my passion. I know you told me you played the bass. Not well. Not well. I think you told me that too. <laughs> but um, did you think that you were going to make a living in music? Was that a goal when you were growing up? I went to a prep school, pretty um, prestigious prep school in Chicago and I was on scholarship and I just always felt like there was pressure for me to be some kind of professional a doctor or a lawyer so I never saw music as a destination or something I would wind up doing which is funny given that my father um, and what he does um, he's the president and the founder of the National Museum of Mexican Art which is the largest Latino nonprofit arts organization in the country, one of two that's accredited by the American Association of Museums. And surprisingly, I never saw myself getting immersed into the arts. Right. Despite, you know, this very tangible connection to the arts, um, despite growing up in a museum, the National Museum of Mexican Art is literally the same age as me, so I see it as like, this sort of sibling I've fought with over the years. <laughs> Did you win? <laughs> I won. I won. No, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's a tremendous institution. We're all very proud of my father and his work. Um, but, you know, I saw the struggle. I saw how difficult it was to, you know, start a nonprofit and make it sustainable. And I think... Those difficulties, seeing that firsthand, made me very uh, wary of going into the arts. Right. Um, even my dad wasn't pushing me too hard to join uh, his sector just because of what he experienced. It's not easy. It takes a lot of passion and a lot of hard work. So it wasn't what I first thought I'd be doing. What did you uh, first think you were doing? I was sort of going through the motions, to be honest. You know, I was a person who spent most of my time at Tower Records, <laughs> at listening kiosks, trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And I had a pretty good idea of what my parents wanted me to do. Right. But, you know, I was still very much coming into my own and trying to figure out what that would inevitably be. But even as a younger person, I mean, I would ditch class go up Clark Street to the Tower Records right by Webster, and I would just blow a whole afternoon there, and I did that often, and that's where I was happiest. Me too. <laughs> not at that Tower Records, but at record stores. Does it not kill you that that experience is not really there anymore? I mean, Chicago has a lot of still record and CD stores, more so than many other cities. But it's not the same as the Tower Records. You can sit there for three hours and just lose yourself. The founder of Tower Records, Russ Solomon, and the vision that he set forth is, I think, one that everyone felt strongly tethered to. I mean, it was, you felt part of those communities. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was the type of place where anybody in that store knew something about music was an expert in at least some right. subgenre of music. And a lot of the current co- colleagues that I work with today were employed in some capacity at Tower Records. Um, one of my biggest mentors in music, Brian Keir, you know, he was a buyer at that Tower Records. Uh-huh. And it's, I don't know, very ironic that, you know, I would not only go to that Tower Records where he was literally stocking the CD shelves with world music and reggae and all the stuff that I was into and that he would later, you know, 
be a mentor, be a colleague that I would work with right here in this building at the Chicago Cultural Center to produce various arts programs. So, you know, in a weird way, blowing off all that time in Tower Records somehow proved worthwhile. But, you know, I know a lot of people, again, that I work with today that had their start at Tower. And I think it was a place that was very opening, very welcoming, and allowed people to come in and just be themselves. And I felt very much like myself mm-hmm. at Tower Records. So, you know, even though it's not with us today, it, it's great to see the resurgence in vinyl sales. You know, for the first year right. in a long time, since I think 1986, vinyl has eclipsed CD sales. So I like to think that's a testament to Ross Solomon and Tower Records. And this need to have a physical media library you know, something that you can hold in your hands. Do you still, I mean, I presume in your position, you're getting a ridiculous amount of CDs sent to you, if not downloads or access to streaming or whatever. But does that physical thing still mean a lot to you, and do you still seek that out? I think it does to my generation, because I can remember how things used to be. Mm -hmm. And the great thing about CDs specifically were the liner notes and they were so rich in content Mm -hmm. and they told musical narratives that for at least me were very new and refreshing and I love that information I wanted to know who the second guitarist on track 8 was you know (laughs) things like that and I think for those individuals CDs will always be relevant Mm -hmm. But even more so, those liner notes, those can be salvaged and recycled. I think that's sort of something that needs to be archived and maintained for future generations, for sure. Okay, so because you get so many sent to you, I I presume, do you still seek out that moment where you go to a record store or a CD store somewhere and and just kind of lose yourself? Does that still happen or does that not happen because of what you do? It happened about two hours ago. Uh, I was at Reckless Records for lunch, and, you know, it's this experience that I, I crave and I physically need. And, you know, with the holidays and all the anxiety, it was, uh, it was pressing today that I go <laughs> to sort of relieve some stress, but also to go back to that, you know, that sense of wonder and exploration where music can be discovered Mm -hmm. and it's at your fingertip and it's just right there and you can grab the vinyl and hold it and you know now it comes in purple and all these different colors and it's like great this is cool and it's it's great to see younger kids uh get into it and I say this as someone who's 38 but the fact that like for my younger cousins like I can buy them a vinyl and it's still cool um, but they see it that way? They do. a lot do. of kids don't. It's changed. There's been a shift. I mean, even with my personal work, um, you know, the blues community, it's still very CD-heavy. Mm-hmm. And I get sent maybe more CDs than I need. Not that I'm complaining, but it's the I anomaly. I It's though. the anomaly. Right. Um, you know, when I'm working in the quote-unquote world music industry... Everything's a downloadable or streaming type of mechanism. So, I mean, CDs are definitely on their way out, and vinyl's definitely coming back in. Um, You know, agents, when they're sending me the latest release of a notable band in world music, they send me vinyl. Wow. Seems like a pain. But nice which, is amaz- so. yeah. which is amazing um, and a pleasant, you know, change. But um, it just depends what world you're operating in. You know, in India, uh, cassettes are still prevalent. Africa, cassettes are still prevalent. So depending on what type of artist you're working with, you could get music in a lot of different formats. But... Um, among professionals in the United States in those respective communities, vinyl's definitely coming back in a major way, so, which is great to see because record stores are alive. You mm-hmm. know, I wasn't the only one there. 
and I'll be going there after the interview. By the way. <laughs> so just so you know. Um, so you were at Tower Records wondering what to do with your life, listening to lots of music. What conclusion did you come to? I think I'm still experiencing, you know, those initial forays into music. I mean, every day I'm blessed with this ability to walk into the cultural center and, you know, help artists sort of launch their careers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't think I came to the conclusion that I wanted to be a musician per se, but I knew that I wanted to be involved not only in the arts, coming full circle, but also um, supporting musicians in whatever way I could to help jumpstart their careers, make them more viable, you know, all the professional development that is required to, you know, help an artist reach a certain plateau, be exposed to certain conferences, you know, maybe get an agent, listen to them, yada, yada, yada. So... I think I just came to the conclusion I just have to be involved in, in, some, in music in some capacity. And I think initially that led me to festivals because I felt festivals were music is most alive. Festivals in, in terms of what you're doing now or volunteering for festivals? And Even before it? that, just as a, like, a concert goer, just as a patron, a fan, as an enthusiast... You know, there's something magical about being at a festival and just being overstimulated by music Mm -hmm. and to be hit by all these different musical waves. And I think I was always attracted to that energy. And I found that to be really exciting. And it's like a kid in a candy store. It's like, there's a band over here. There's a band over there. There's multiple stages. It's like... This is the best. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I've gone to a lot of festivals like Bonnaroo and things like that and I've had the time of my life. And I think what I've wanted to do is take those very magical for-profit experiences and make them, in my line of work, accessible, free, magical experiences. And... Um, I've learned that the impact of the arts is just greater than just the listener itself. I mean, you know, I've learned that the arts is also a business. It's an economy, and it supports so much in terms of tourism and just, you know, someone's interest in coming to a city. Mm-hmm. You know, for someone like Chicago or someplace like Chicago, we're very unique. You know, we're one of the few municipalities, if not the only one, that provides free public programming on our scale. Right. That has this free music season throughout the summer that produces a gospel fest, a blues fest, a house fest, a jazz fest, all for free. Um, I think that's special. Mm. And I love being part of that because you see firsthand the impact. So do you know how difficult it is to do that? Like, was it, was it a difficult sale a number of years ago to say, let's make a Chicago a festival des- destination for these kinds of musics? Or do you know? Like, I mean, how, how is it that the Chicago Blues Festival is the largest blues festival in the world, free blues festival in the world? And, and I think have a we huge... have to backtrack a bit and speak about... Lois Weisberg, who was the city of Chicago's uh, first arts commissioner. What time well, not the first arts commissioner. There was Fred Fine. There was Joan Harris. But I would say Joan, um, Lois Weisberg was the first to establish the scale of programming that all Chicagoans know of and enjoy today. At what time? What part time I would period? say like early 80s. Blues festivals started around 84. Okay. We're entering our 37th year. And when it first started, was it by the city of Chicago or was it a private thing that got taken over? Well, with the Blues Fest, there was an earlier Willie Dixon-inspired festival that happened in 83 that was somehow interpreted as the initial inauguration or the first Chicago Blues Festival. Officially, it's 84, but 
I think that Willie Dixon Festival helped spawn and show the city what you know a city you know a city festival could be right. and do. Um, but Lois Weisberg was pivotal in starting all of these free music programs, and not just the free music festivals, but saving this building, the Chicago Cultural Center, which is a national landmark. Um, yeah, a lot of the programming that I currently work on, a lot of the program my colleagues currently work on, is all a testament to her legacy. And and do you think it was a hard sell for her to convince people to to invest in these arts festivals? I mean, it's always been a hard sell. I just think she had one of these personalities that was able to just cut through all the BS, to be frank. Mm-hmm. And she enjoyed the friendships of many notable artists, from Herbie Hancock to Ramsey Lewis to Yo-Yo Ma. And I think these friendships helped to, you know, establish a lot of the programming that we enjoy today. Um, she also happened to be very good friends with Maggie Daly, who is the first lady mm-hmm. for many years. So I think all those things. Um, bode well in her favor in terms of developing a landscape of free arts programming. So yeah, I mean, I came into this line of work under her administration, under her... Was this the first festival you worked with, or did you work with other private... The first program and festival that I started with was Chicago Summer Dance. It's sort of... I came in green, and I cut my teeth on that program. Um... I ran Summer Dance for 15 years. This past year was the first year I was not literally um, at Summer Dance from load in to load out. Um, is that a week-long thing, or how long is the Summer Dance? Well, it's, a, you know, it's shifted in terms of the uh, number of days per week and number of weeks, but at its minimum, at least during my tenure, was eight weeks. Wow. To as many as 11 weeks. Jeez. Four days to five days a week. But that was part of the city? All part of the city. We also did um, a program in partnership with the Park District where we toured the Summer Dance series to various Park District locations. So the Summer Dance brand kept expanding and growing um, to other sites and locations citywide. So there'd be summer dance events, quote, unquote, at Navy Pier and elsewhere, um, Douglas Park to Humble Park to Jackson Park, everywhere. Mm-hmm. And we usually had about anywhere from 8 to 11 park district dates. So in totality, you're talking about at least 40 to 50 summer dance programs in a given year. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I was a primary um, force behind making those happen. Did it get to, in the 15 years that you're working on it, did it grow a great deal, and did it get to a place where you wanted it to be, or do you still see potential for bigger growth? I mean, there's always potential. I mean, you could always throw more money at something, right? And, you know, you could improve infrastructure. You can make it bigger. I think the success of Summer Dance is not necessarily due to the talent that is booked. That's not to say that the talent isn't good, but it's about creating an experience. An experience. And the experience is to be able to dance in a public park encircled by, you know, the dizzying city lights and, you know, all the skyscrapers and... And to make people feel like they're proud to be a part of the city. Um, The experience that we want to create is beyond just, you know, an artistic experience. Um, Summer Dance is unique in that so many people of diverse backgrounds come together to dance, not knowing one another's name. But what unfolds at Summer Dance is almost almost magical. I've always compared it to a Shakespearean garden where people abandon, you know, their traditional role in society and they come to this garden and 
you know, they're more at peace, they're more natural with their surroundings, they're more open, and all these things come out in everybody. And um, again, I think it, that's what people find at Summer Dance is this opportunity to unite, to feel connected to other parts of the city, an opportunity to learn different cultures. And, you know, the music and dance just becomes a vehicle to that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think more and more my experience with the Summer Dance program has trained me to seek opportunities to create new experiences in some of our other, you know, built-in programs and our festivals. Um, but I always celebrate summer dance because, again, it's probably has the most meager budget of all the festivals. But it's the one that is most talked about. Hmm. What do you think it is about Chicago? I mean, a lot of people in my circles will say Chicago is known for the blues. But it's also known for gospel. It's also known for jazz. It's also known for great food. It's also known for dance. What is it about the city that maybe... It has more of that than people give it credit for. Or, or the fact that Chicago has all those elements to it. Like, what makes Chicago such a vibrant, artistic city? I think a lot of it has to do with immigration. Mm-hmm. Chicago, geographically speaking, is a hub for everything. Commerce, goods, anything. Right. Culture is no different. Waves of immigration is no different. Um, While we are extremely segregated to this day, the one benefit, I guess, of segregation is that the neighborhoods have retained a sense of immigrant culture that comes together in a magical way during these downtown festivals, during these downtown activations. Um, I think people realize that it's a city meant for everybody. And I feel that's why, you know, we're always first to embrace, you know, markers like being a sanctuary city and things that we celebrate because we see it so readily in our everyday lives. You know, mm-hmm. None of what we enjoy could exist if it wasn't for all of us coming together. So I think that's really a testament to the city's character and a foundation of immigrants that continue to pour into the city, revitalize it, make it new, bring new elements. Hopefully we'll become less segregated, but I think, again, there's these neighborhood pockets that are opening their their borders a bit and becoming more um, accessible across the city. And it's great to see them. So from the Summer Dance Program, and I presume you were involved in other festivals, how did you wind up with the Blues Festival? Hard work, you know. something that you, was it a goal of yours to? It's always been a goal of mine to produce the Blues Festival. I mean, I've only touched a little bit on my musical passions, but like Jimi Hendrix, I would have to say, was a major one. And it's kind of odd that I got into Chicago Blues from a Seattle guitarist but it's the truth Jimi Hendrix was how I learned about Muddy Waters it was how I learned about Buddy Guy it's how I learned about like John Lee Hooker it was my first entry into um, to the blues world so I was always on the outside looking in and being young being green I knew it was going to take some time, but I always wanted to end up working on the Chicago Blues Festival. And, you know, there's an opportunity when the festival director prior to me for many years, Barry Dolenz, retired. And in the interim, my former colleague, Janine Brown-Mosley, was um, at the helm for just a couple years. I saw it as an opportunity where... I could, you know, get started on being a part of the team and helping to produce the annual festival. So I just straight up asked the commissioner for that opportunity. And I think having proven myself at Summer Dance, but also the World Music Festival, which I've been part of for also 
now 16 years, and I've curated and directed since 2012. Um, I think all of those things helped to sort of build up my CV and help to convince the powers that be that I could take the Blues Festival, I could reinvigorate it, I could bring it up, bring it back to the level that it, it needs to be at. I so mean, what, what did you see that it was lacking, if that's the right word, or what did you want to change? I think with all music, there's a fine line between fine art and being commercially viable. Mm-hmm. I think with some of the older music forms, some of the older American music forms, um, you see communities at a crossroads where they don't know where to go. You know, and I'm not to judge. I just have strong beliefs on how it should be done. Mm -hmm. I see jazz and classical music becoming more immersed in the academia and foundation worlds. Right. And I see them farther removed from the commercial mainstream um, music movements. Blues is surprisingly still very much relevant to all commercial music. And I think the reason for that is blues is a foundational music mm-hmm. and is like the bedrock of all forms of popular music that we enjoy and listen to. So to the ear, it's, it's, immediately, it's immediately noticeable how close they are. It's like this immediate cousin right. where I didn't feel like it would be difficult for blues to sort of maintain that connection in a very genuine, sincere way while at the same time still being a blues genre. Let's look at the genre we know as blues rock. Right. I would see this as sort of the bridge to commercial, more mainstream, popular music. Um, you look at Kenny Wayne Shepherd. you look at certain artists, or even going back, Stevie Ray Vaughan, that have allowed for you know, younger generations to continually find the blues and get re-immersed into it. Um, I don't know if jazz and classical music, obviously harder for classical, but I don't know if jazz is, is as intentional about that. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, there's many parallels between jazz and commercial music, and there's a lot of connections, but I don't know if it's, an, again, as intentional if they want to be tied to that community as much as maybe the blues community wants to or still can be right. for... So I think, you know, with the blues, you know, the way the blues festival, Chicago Blues Festival, the way it was being programmed for many years, um, there were a lot of thematic tributes. And I think for many years it was a successful formula, but I think over time it ran its course and there was a need to sort of reconnect it to just music in general and sort of open up the definitions of what constitutes blues music. How important is the Chicago element to that? I mean, obviously, the Chicago Blues Festival features a lot of Chicago musicians. How important is it to kind of keep that tradition and and make sure that X percentage of performers are Chicago musicians versus bringing in tons of people from all over the world? Or is that even an issue? Oh, it's definitely an issue. Again, it's about balance. Um, you know, I'm a civic presenter. I work for the city of Chicago, and I'm producing the Chicago Blues Festival. Um, and as you noted, there's many Chicago blues musicians, but then there's also the Chicago blues style, mm-hmm. which, like blues rock or Piedmont blues or Mississippi Hill blues or Memphis soul, all these things need to be sort of honored and curated under a blues festival 
at least that's how I see it. They right. should all get their moment under the sun. Um, but obviously, again, being here in Chicago, you know, we can't ignore, nor do we ever want to ignore, all the blues music that originated here, the right. style that was born here. So, I mean, that will never get lost on us, but we also have to keep in mind that 15% of our Blues Festival audience is from abroad. 32% of our audience is from out of state. So it would be wrong for us to just cater to one singular style of blues. And we've been more successful in highlighting all the elements and I think people appreciate that balance. So if you go to the Chicago Blues Festival, you'll see multiple stages, last year six stages, and each of them has a different aesthetic and is programmed differently to sort of highlight the entire diaspora. Um, But by no means do I wanna diminish the Chicago Blues genre, I just wanna Elevated by celebrating amongst all these other styles. Is that a difficult thing to do? Like, I mean, it's are you getting very difficult. It's very difficult. Fortunately for me, um, one of the smartest things I did is I formed a committee. Mm-hmm. I formed a program committee comprised of 25 individuals, various stakeholders in the blues community folks who range from being record execs to musicians to journalists um, to radio media personalities um, just a wide mix of people who are passionate about the blues know the blues and um, it's a volunteer committee that I convene monthly that helps to helps me to sort out this this challenge and helps me to book the lineup for the festival that said I th- I know I could do it unilaterally I just don't think that's the way to do civic government work mm-hmm. um, I'm blessed to be able to have a budget that is you know provided to me by taxpayer dollars um, we have sponsors we have partners but the bulk of the money is taxpayer dollars that produces this annual festival. So I feel like it's imperative to bring everyone in to convene this sort of bigger voices in the community to ensure that it's done right. And I formed the committee in 2018, and we've been going strong for nearly, I think, 20, 21 months. And anyone who's been in the Blues Festival the past couple years and has thought to themselves, wow, this lineup is amazing. Well, the reason is the program committee. Mm -hmm. I mean, what's amazing about that committee, too, is, you know, they have connections that extend beyond what a a typical programmer has at their disposal. You know, I don't necessarily have to go to the agent first. I can go to the manager or I have colleagues on the committee who know these musicians firsthand and we can develop really nuanced sort of novel ideas that don't happen elsewhere and given that we're the largest blues festival in the world largest free music festival in the world why not do those things why not do something that other festivals don't have the means to, not only from a budget standpoint, but also because they're not have access or they're not privy to these types of connections that are on my committee. And, um, you know, it's just been a great way to also receive a lot of organic promotion. You know, all these people are part of the process. I don't have to ask them to sell it. And we're not short on attendance, mind you. We had 180,000 over the three-day festival, but still all the documentation, all the press, everything that goes into the festival 
has just been you know made that much stronger by their involvement how do you measure success because i mean it is an event and it's an event that many people come every year um it's free i presume somewhat um dependent on weather so that your attendance might go down for no other reason than the fact that it rained on saturday or whatever but how do you yourself measure success of this festival it always rains blues festival weekend <laughs> and i'll tell you this our blues enthusiasts our blues patrons they simply don't care um Blues Fest is one time a year, and they're going to make it work. Mm-hmm. Um, so rain has never really been, um, thank God, a big um, obstacle for us. But yeah, it is challenging to be able to cater to all the directives, not only that we establish for ourselves as a program committee, for example, in trying to honor blues greats, or maybe we're trying to elevate blues women but then there's also department directives and initiatives so for 2020 it's the year of Chicago music so that's a department-wide city-wide initiative and everything that we produce has to sort of in some way um, align with those goals so year to year you know we could have different programming arts that slightly change the makeup of the festival, but it's just stuff that we talk about, and you know, we again, we just try to be as you know, just mindful of all these things, and when it comes to shaping the lineup, so. I think when you have 25 individuals who all have different skill sets, um, those challenges are met more easily. But um, it it changes from year to year, um, from festival to festival, and you just have to sort of roll with those punches and those new directives. So you've been on heading this for the last four years, is that correct? Is it like your fourth year? This would be my third year. Um, I came on board uh, in 2018 with the Blues Fest, and this would be my third year at the helm, sort of driving it and shaping the program. So do you have a sense of where it is to where you want it to be, or is it constantly moving? I think in terms of where I want Blues Festival to go is I want it to maintain that commercial relevance, um, coupled with, again, trying to you know, stay grounded in the blues roots, the blues tradition. Um, I think there are artists that are commercially viable that were like me, went to Tower Records and were at listening kiosks, listening to the same luminaries that influenced me. Right. And it's, in, you know, it's we don't have to just speak of the Rolling Stones, but there's a number of you know, musicians today, or Johnny Lang, people who want to be tethered to that identity, to that experience, and to be honored, to be able to sit in with Chicago blues musicians, it just tickles them with joy. I mean, I think there are a lot of commercial artists who see the value in the blues tradition and its importance. Um, and they see where their music comes from. It wasn't made in a vacuum. And they, it's these artists that we need to build deeper connections to. Who are the new Claptons? Who are the new music greats that are highly regarded in commercial music that can help elevate what we're doing, pay respects to what we're doing? But it's also you know, very exciting to see individuals like Kingfish and Marquise Knox and know that you know there's already an emerging generation Mm -hmm. of blues players ready to lead us um, John Tavius Willis there's so many and I just think we need to do a better job positioning the festival again as relevant to these other commercial sectors why can't blues musicians be at Lollapalooza why can't they play Bonnaroo? Mm-hmm. Why aren't they featured at Coachella? 
I think the challenge for blues festival and a lot of genre-defined festivals is that they not get too insular and trapped in their own worlds and remember that they have to reach out and remind everyone that music is a universal language, transcends all boundaries, even the ones that we build up. So I think, again, with the Blues Festival, that's what I've been trying to do. Um, and it's difficult. Even with the programming committee, there are the quote-unquote purists who feel blues is, you know, defined under very strict parameters. Right. Um, but then I would, I guess, coming from my World Music Festival background, and programming so many African bluesmen. I hate to use an essential term like that, but let's say specifically West African, right. Malian. Look at this new desert rock scene that's emerged in the Sahara, the Tanarwins of the world, the Bambinos. Um, there's blues music that's played across the world that's not embraced by the American blues circuit. Right or the personalities that define blues in this country. I'm always amazed by how difficult it is for Canadian blues artists to get booked right. in the U.S. circuit. But there are many factors. The Underground Railroad went where? Yeah. It went north, and, and even into Canada, into places like Toronto, Ontario. There's always been a very vibrant black community in Canada For sure. because of slavery. And they took the same history that American slaves, black Americans had, and they took that north. It wasn't like they weren't affected by these things. But yet, that, that experience can't translate on a blue circuit it's not as authentic as the American, mm -hmm. you know, blues experience. They can't relate to the sharecropper down south. I find I, that I, really I don't hard even know to if believe. It's about sharecroppers anymore, but I mean, the other fact is well, back know, in the day, the yeah. muddy waters of the day. But I mean, 19th. you think, you know, you speak of muddy waters, and you think, that, you know, maybe a bigger factor was the fact that people like muddy waters played in Toronto all the time. Oh, yes. You know, for weeks on end. So so many young players got influenced by that, and they started playing the blues, and those are the people who are, you know, the main blues musicians of Toronto and The blues Canada. is vibrant in the UK. Yeah. It's vibrant in Brazil. Yeah. The submissions I receive are a testament to that global influence. It's just very ironic to me that, you know, this music went worldwide, but the gatekeepers, they want to fortify it at American borders. Like it's crazy how much a Canadian band has to pay to just to come to the States to play. And they just raise the figures even more, which makes it really difficult. Somebody has to pay $1,000 per band or whatever it is, and, and oftentimes months in advance. But even forget the logistical expenses and just you know, coming here and playing, mm -hmm. et cetera. Having to overcome the initial hurdle of yeah. being embraced as a bluesman or blueswoman. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of great artists uh, that, you know, Nika Chambers is now based in Canada. You know, a lot of blues artists find refuge in Canada mm -hmm. and work in Canada and... Again, it's just it, it's a it's a small example of again how these the purity doesn't serve the genre. It doesn't help to sustain it. It doesn't help to grow it. Right. And I think whether it's being mixing up the artist selections and being more open-minded to a VF Arcatoire, to a Bombino, um, you know, or even some of the more acoustic blues elements. You know, one of the biggest things that we're working on for 2020 is helping to um, feature acoustic sets, pare-down configurations on the Pritzker stage. Because mm. oftentimes the thinking with festivals is, let's drop a stage, you get the biggest headliner, the biggest band, the most sound. Right. 
but that's not always what's best. And, you know, when you think of how large the blues diaspora is, it'd be a huge disservice to just never consider the acoustic elements because this is a main stage and the thinking is we have to have loud, big acts. Especially when we're talking about the Jay Pritzker Pavilion, which was designed for predominantly a classical symphony orchestra that resides there, the mm. Grand Park Symphony. So it projects well. It doesn't need to be overly amplified. There is a form on that stage for this type of blues presentation. Right. But it's not the type of blues presentation that you're going to see at Buddy Guy's or a lot of places. Mm. And, and that's not to knock any of those places. But again, if we're a blues festival... If we're the biggest blues festival in the world, then we should set the standard for how everyone else should see the blues. For sure. And we should definitely set the standard for blues presentation. I don't think following the commercial sector is the way to go. Following for-profit promoters that have to adhere to a bottom line, they're not the best equipped to deal with sort of these esoteric questions about the blues and where it should go and what it means and all these things. You mentioned the submissions. So there is a page on your website where musicians can submit, and, and I think dancers too, to submit themselves for consideration. I can't imagine how many submissions you get and how, what a difficult thing that is to choose somebody but how does that work I mean people we have a number of different ways that you can apply from just showing up right. we get drop-ins believe it or not um, so during the festival just you know in anticipation of a festival I have blues musicians who just come on by to express their interest <laughs> and you have to remember there's somewhat of a, a generational divide you know <laughs> a lot of them are older maybe not as tech-savvy. And, you know, they hearken back to an era where it was all done in person. You sat down, you talked to someone, they were across the table from you. It wasn't through a computer monitor emailing one another back and forth. So that was a bit of a change for me, coming from the quote-unquote world music sector, where it's all very, you know, tech-savvy, and it's all emails, and there's just a different way of sharing information and so forth. So, you know, yes, we have an online submission page. Our committee members put forth ideas. Um, You know, folks who know me come to me directly, whether it's our programming partners, venue partners, just people who have ideas. Um, So there's many different conduits to me. And... You know, I do my best to sort of table all the inquiries, but I lean heavily on the programming committee to sort of help sift through all of that and doing a good job of making sure that, you know, we rotate, we bring on new acts, we highlight those emerging acts. Um, So, you know, it's one of those things that just requires a lot of spreadsheets, a lot of organization. And every meeting we talk about different things, different suggestions, and glean through those lists to help make the best decisions for the festival. So last time I saw you, I think you had said, I had said, when do you think you'd make the announcement and you'd hope in the early part of the new year? Uh, this We're at the end of December, this whole error, I think, on second week of January. Where are you in in the stage of booking the acts and scheduling the the festival for the summer? It's fair to say that the festival is mostly done at this point. Um, In terms of the announcement, it happens in various stages. Um, The initial announcement is just of the dates, sort of save the dates. Um, Which came early this year. And it's the earliest it's ever happened. We announced directly after the festival ended. And the 2020 dates are June 5th through the 7th, Millennium Park. And 
it was amazing to be able to announce that far in advance. Mm. Just, again, when you consider how many tourists are coming for the Blues Festival, it's important to get just the dates out there as soon as possible. So that's the first step. In terms of subsequent announcements, we announced headliners in late January. The full schedule comes out in March 2020. And all these announcements are coinciding with the year Chicago Music and a larger scale announcement about everything that we're doing for that. So, um, yeah, by March 2020, we'll have all of that announced. Um, one of the reasons that we've sort of accelerated our deadlines and we've been unveiling this information a lot sooner is during the year Chicago Music, there's a specific 18-day period that starts May 21st and goes to June 7th. During that period, there are three city festivals that are taking place the Chicago Gospel Festival, Chicago House Festival, and the Chicago Blues Festival. During this 18-day period, um, we are extending all the energy and activity that's happening downtown citywide. So we've waived artist exclusivity for all those aforementioned festivals. So for the first time ever, all the festival artists that are booked for blues are now available to other venues to program and put on. Right. Um, and that's huge. Mm -hmm. um, all the touring artists that we book for Blues Festival, we put up for two nights of hotels. So they technically have an off night right. where they can play if they want to. So now um, there's an opportunity for venues and clubs to, um, to program an artist that maybe they've never been able to afford or that logistically has never been able to fit into their calendar that now is there, will be around. And it's just, you know, a bidding war to determine what venues they will play. Right. But all of that programming that happens elsewhere is now going to be part of the Blues Festival. So we are being, again, more intentional about not only bringing everyone together, but making sure that that energy is felt citywide in all the clubs and venues that support this music year-round. Um, this 18-day period is going to be a non-genre-defined period, so there's be all types of musical events that'll be promoted as part of the year Chicago music, but it shouldn't be lost on anybody that around Blues Festival weekend, there's already been mm -hmm. um, a tradition of after-sets, and other activity built around the festival, now it's going to be more tethered and more intentional and just better promoted. But also, hopefully, the artistics um, programming will be improved by just waiving the exclusivity. So, you know, we have some amazing artists performing in 2020, and they're considering these opportunities as well, which is great because... We want to support places like Roses. We want to support our buddy guys. We want to support Blues on Halstead. We want to support Kingston Mines. You know, they're doing this year-round. And they should be able to be part of our festival and that experience. Again, it's a civic initiative. Right. And we're not selling tickets. What's really the reason to do this from our point of view? because we love Chicago, we love our arts, we love the blues. So these are partners, these aren't competitors. And I think that's probably the biggest difference in 2020 from 2019 is not only are you going to see this amazing festival lineup at Millennium Park, but when the festival ends at 9 p.m., you're not going to go back to your hotel room. You're not going to call it a night. You're going to go to Buddy Guys. You're going to go to Roses. You're going to go to Kingston Mine. Or maybe you just go to another venue that has maybe an amazing house DJ. Or maybe on the weekend, there's a gospel program at a church. All is permissible during this 18-day period. So you're not going to sleep for like three weeks. Right? No, no. I definitely won't. And 
you know, in addition to the Blues Festival and World Music Festival, um, I'm spearheading a lot of the venue and club initiatives that are part of the year of Chicago music. So I'm doing my very best to make sure that the Blues Fest is uh, represented not only all year, but really during this 18-day period. Um, is the Blues Fest the biggest festival out of all the festivals that the city runs in? It's the biggest one that we produce. Mm-hmm. And like I said earlier, it's the largest free music festival in the world. Um, but I presume the gospel festival must be pretty large, too. I mean, we measure success differently. I mean, blues attendance eclipses all the other ones by a lot. It's probably blues, then jazz, and house. Um, you know, gospel definitely has a great attendance, but gospel music being more rooted in Christian uh, teachings and so forth maybe doesn't have as wide of um, wide of appeal to um, the city base, but gospel music is, you know, in itself secular. Mm-hmm. The music itself is secular, right. despite its influence. Um, and it's been influential in R&B and all types of pop music. Think of a Jennifer Hudson and all these amazing vocalists who came out of gospel choirs and mm-hmm. the gospel tradition. So, yeah, there's a lot to experience, a lot to do. But I think what, in short, we're trying to do is establish what we already know and many other folks already know, and that is Chicago is a music capital. We probably haven't been as successful as Austin in marketing themselves as such, or in Nashville. Mm-hmm. But when you really think about the whole picture, I mean, they really can't touch Chicago historically. Right. In terms of these iconic art forms, it's not comparable. And then we're just much larger city mm-hmm. to begin with so it's not even fair to compare but you know again I have to lead back to our geographical position but we're a hub of culture and I think you'll see all of that next year in a very meaningful way and Blues Festival will lead a lot of that conversation obviously given its global impact its global exposure um, so Blues Festival next year, you know, will continue to do what it always has, but it's going to be more aligned with these department initiatives, these citywide goals, and part of just a larger celebration of the Chicago music landscape. Um, but obviously, Blues plays a huge part of that. Well, <clears throat> I know you're a busy man. I really appreciate you doing this. I want to just finish with one more question. Sure. What's the greatest thing you've learned about, I guess, the Blues through this experience of running the, the Chicago Blues Festival. What has surprised you? The humility. Blues people are the most down-to-earth folks you'll ever meet. And I've worked in a lot of artist communities. Not all of them I've enjoyed working with, <laughs> to be frank. Can you give me some names? No. <laughs> <clears throat> but with the blues community, and you've got characters for sure, mm-hmm. but... It's amazing to see the camaraderie and how they come together. And it really is like dealing with a big family. Um, just convening the programming committee, it's, it's a gang of misfits, but they're all very passionate about the blues. And just I don't see that same level across the board in the arts. I think it has something to do, not specifically with the art form, but more where they are at at this juncture in their life. Mm-hmm. Many of them are older, and I think you know they're just wiser, and they've seen a lot and experienced a lot, and in some cases trying to make sure that it's preserved. Maybe they're anxious about its future but they're all coming together to serve the blues. And it's amazing how many egos are put aside. It's so much easier for me to get 
blues musicians to come in and jam with one another than it is other mm. disciplines. Jazz is a bit like that for mm. sure. Even Indian classical music, people love to come together and like play together with different artists. But with blues, it's the norm. Yeah. It's the norm. It's expected. People are always dropping in, sitting in with a musician. And I just feel like there's that continual teaching. I mean, you can go to Rosa's on most weekends and see all the elders have all the young guys come in and sit in with them. And they love it. Mm -hmm. And they want it. And it's expected. And I think that maintains this sort of like familiar, cyclical, generational respect. Um, it's not lost on anyone in that community where this music comes from. And, you know, we're all American. We understand the historical importance it is to our country, too. You know, to our city. So they all carry that. And just being able to be a witness to it as a 38-year-old who, you know, is not necessarily from, you know, those communities. Um, it's been amazing how they've embraced me. Um, so I think that's really rare is to just see the humility on their part from the greats like Bobby Rush, mm -hmm. all of them. They're all very down to earth. It's amazing to see. And uh, it's not true of other genres. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.